Hello, and welcome to Prehistory, the archaeology of the ancient Near East. My name is Jane, and today I want to tell you about the Middle Paleolithic. Last week, we covered a little over a million years of the Lower Paleolithic in the Near East, with most of the evidence which we've discovered coming from small sites in the open air, and most of our evidence coming from a very few finds of ancient people, and considerably more from the tools which they lost or threw away, as well as the leftovers from their dinners. This week, we're entering the Middle Paleolithic, where much of our evidence still comes from a few finds of ancient people, and a considerably greater part from their rubbish. Of course, in a way, most of archaeology is poking through people's rubbish and using it to figure out what they got up to. I suppose you could say that we are the worst kind of nosy neighbors, as even thousands of years is not enough to stop us from poking through the rubbish to stick our nose into the lives of other people. Happily, on the upside, everybody whose lives we're poking our nose into are already long dead, so they're not complaining. In the Paleolithic, we're poking our noses into the rubbish of the really long dead, and at least for the Middle Paleolithic, we have a bit more rubbish to look at than we did before, so we can understand more about what life was like. The Middle Paleolithic, as I said last week, starts in the Near East a little before 200,000 years ago, with the current best estimate being about 215,000 years ago. One of the big indicators that we have for a site being from the Middle Paleolithic, even before we managed to get a date for the site, or for sites that were excavated a long time ago where we don't have dates, is the presence of a particular type of stone tool manufacturing technique called Lavalois. Lavalois is named for a suburb of Paris where the first tools made using this technique were found in the 19th century. The Lavalois technique describes a particular sort of process where you prepare the core, or the parent rock, by taking off a series of flakes across one face to get a good exterior shape before taking off one or more large flakes which are then made into tools. This is different from what we had in the Lower Paleolithic, where we had the Acheulean. The Acheulean takes flakes off of a core in order to shape a tool out of the center of the core, a bit like carving a statue out of a large block of stone, with the statue being in the middle and all the little bits taken off just being excess stone needing to be removed. The Lavalois takes this idea and turns it around. Now the flakes that are taken off of the core are not excess bits surrounding the tool, they themselves are the tool or at least the beginning stages of different tools. There are differences within Lavalois in the direction of impact in removing the flakes, or which side of the core you hit and in which order in order to make the shape that you want before you remove the large flake. There are also little differences in how flakes were then finished up and shaped into tools, but generally Lavalois just refers to this process of shaping a core so that you can take large flakes off of it and then turn these flakes into your tools. In terms of the manufacturing variation, you can work all around the core in a sequence, or you can turn it back and forth and hit alternating sides in turn, and so on. Each of these different variations has a name, and a lot of work goes into figuring out exactly how cores were shaped at each site so that archaeologists can look for patterns in how people went about shaping a core at different sites and in different times. The process of making a tool is a bit like anything else which you learn from tying your shoes to the way that you write. Things like this that are learned tend to be learned in a similar way within a social group. They're taught from parent to child or passed between friends and form part of our culture. The way that we make stone tools is also considered part of the culture of ancient societies. 
and differences in the way that tools are made between regions or through time helps to tell us which areas had groups of people who were talking to one another and so ultimately sharing information and practices over the area where these groups interacted. This is also why archaeologists get really interested about the shape of things and how they were made, as it gives us an idea of how one family or one site fit into a wider social network spread over a valley or a region or many regions. While this is a beautiful approach to reconstructing who was talking to who in the past, it has a bit of a problem when it comes to different ways of making tools using the Lavalois technique. Generally, we find several of these Lavalois methods at any given site, and there don't really seem to be any clear patterns between groups of different areas on which one was used the most often. Annoyingly for everyone who spent decades looking at the tiny details of how cores were shaped to make tools, it's not a great help in dividing up time and space in the Middle Paleolithic. It's not a lost cause, though. There are other things that we can tell from this, but specifically, it doesn't work out so well here in separating out social groups. It's not like people on the coast always worked a core around in a circle, and people in the Taurus Mountains worked back and forth on alternating sides, while those in the Zagros Mountains shaped the core top and bottom to take off two flakes at once. That would make things too easy. And why would the past try to make things easy for us? That would take the fun out of arguing if it was so easy, and we love to argue. Apart from the past having fun winding up archaeologists, this variation in technique also suggests that the specific choice of the order in which you took off the flakes probably had more to do with what the stone was like and what you wanted to make rather than being a family tradition handed down from parent to child. One thing that Lavalois allowed for was a lot more flexibility in the way that tools were made. And this is part of why we have so many little variations in how cores were prepared. Acheulean tools pretty much had a different method for making each tool, and even a different method for making each tool using a different type of stone. While this did require a lot of skill and knowledge, the downside is that you have pretty much just one process for making that tool out of that particular type of stone. This means that if you started out making a hand axe and you changed your mind, you were kind of stuck. It's a bit like if you start making bread and then decide you don't really want bread, you want cake. If you only knew the Acheulean approach to making stone tools, or baking in this case, but bear with me, you would either have to throw away your half-made bread and start again with making cake, or you would have to finish making your bread and just wish that you had cake instead. The Lavalois method means that you can start preparing to make one kind of tool, and then you are absolutely able to change your mind halfway through and make a different one instead. It's the stone tool making equivalent of adding eggs, butter, and sugar to your bread dough and turning it into a cake. So we are pretty much only talking about one technique for making tools, but one which allows you to make a much wider range of tools and to be flexible about what you want to make at each stage. We can agree, then, that Lavalois is a big improvement in technology, but it isn't really a revolution. You see this method turning up a bit in the later stages of the Lower Paleolithic across the Near East, as well as in Africa and in Europe. It just becomes more common, and in the Middle Paleolithic, it takes over. There are other ways of making stone tools in the Middle Paleolithic that don't use Lavalois, but by and large, it is the most common method. We also see a change in the choices that people were making about what kind of stone they use for making tools. In the Lower Paleolithic, people used a really big range of types of stone to make tools. 
These stones can have really different properties, and that's probably why they had different methods for making tools using different types of stone. And the Middle Paleolithic, and from here onwards for a long time, this gets simplified as people changed to really only using flint and chert. If you're not a specialist in stone, it is actually quite difficult to tell the difference between flint and chert. So just to simplify things here, we'll talk about both as though they're flint. Flint is the best type of stone for making tools. Well, no, there's a volcanic glass called obsidian that's much better, but for that you need to live near an old volcano, so it's a bit um, niche. Flint, though, is very strong and has a nice even structure, which means that it breaks in regular and predictable ways, and it breaks to make a razor sharp edge. I'll put a video link up on the website if you want to see an example of someone making tools using the Lavalois technique. And you will definitely notice that the guy in the video has little cuts on his hands from all of the sharp edges, even though he really knows what he's doing. Okay, in terms of technology and making stone tools, Lavalois is a big thing differentiating the Middle Paleolithic from the Lower Paleolithic. But what else is different now in the Middle Paleolithic that sets it apart from earlier? We talked last week about how we start getting more evidence of people from the coastal parts of the Near East at the end of the Lower Paleolithic changing from mostly outdoor living to beginning to make base camps in caves and regularly having a fire. This is also something that we see in the Middle Paleolithic and something that we see pretty commonly across the Near East and not just along one stretch of the coast like we had at the end of the Lower Paleolithic. We don't only have cave sites. We have a mix of cave and open air sites, although for the most part, the open air sites which we found don't tend to be base camps like we see in caves. Sites which we find out in the open are usually on the edges of rivers or lakes or some other water source, and they are sometimes places where people stayed for a while and which were used as base camps, but mostly they're short-term campsites, places where animals were hunted or butchered, or places near a good cache of stone where people prepped the rocks for making stone tools either making them there at the cliff face or bringing the chosen pieces back to the cave to finish off. So these open air sites were not terribly different from the ones that we see in the lower Paleolithic. They are still the remains of people doing a job, getting dinner or making tools, or their short-term camps that people stayed at as they moved around, presumably between base camps. This is also not all that different from what we saw before. The difference is that these are no longer the only types of sites that we get. The big difference that we have is that we systematically see these cave sites. Our big difference in sites then is that we systematically have these cave site base camps that we saw a little bit at the end of the lower Paleolithic. People are not wandering from place to place in a group with everyone needing to stick together to get every bit of food or to get every tool so that they don't get lost. Now we have a home where people can stay for a few days or a few weeks or maybe even a few months and where a few of them can leave and go out hunting and a few others can go out and pick some nuts and some grains or some wild vegetables and a few others can hang out at the cave, babysit the little ones and make some fresh sewn tools. This means that getting everything you need is now much more efficient as your one group can do many things at once rather than everybody having to come along together and the group as a whole only getting one thing done at a time. These caves were pretty nice too. Not only would they have kept you out of the rain, but from some of them it looks like people spread bushes across the entrance to help keep out the wind and maybe protect everyone from predators. They also had at least one or maybe several fireplaces inside the cave, 
So it may not have been warm and bright the way that we get in houses with central heating and electricity, but it would have still been pretty homey. In several of these caves, we have dumps of ash from the fires, where the old ash was scraped out of the hearth and dumped along the edges of the walls, out of the way. We also have a couple of caves where it looks like they were spreading these ashes out in one area in the back of the cave, which might have been to make the ground a bit flatter and to cover up any hard or bumpy bits so that the ground is more comfortable when you put down your fur ground cloth and lay down to curl up in your fur blankets. There are some arguments that people may have put tents up inside these caves as well, made out of wood poles and leather or fur coverings in order to keep out more of the weather. Although mostly this is based on finding a few rocks placed around in one area, which maybe were used to hold up the tent poles, so it's hard to say. Wooden animal skins would really not have preserved for all that long, and they wouldn't have left any really clear marks in the ground for us to go on, so whether or not people slept in tents is one of those things that we can argue about as much as we like, because we will probably never know for sure one way or the other. I like the idea of people sleeping in tents, so for the sake of argument, and because I'm the one doing the talking, let's say that they had tents. If you don't agree, that's fine. We can always argue about it later. Anyway, while tents are more uncertain, we have some pretty strong evidence that some areas of the cave were work areas, where people were doing their cooking and making their stone tools, and where we get concentrations of little stone pieces and broken animal bones, often around the fireplaces. And we have some parts of the same caves where it's pretty clean, either with nothing or with spread out old ashes. In a couple of cases, instead of ashes, we found lots of phytoliths, those tiny hard bits that form between the cells of plants, in the dirt in these clean areas, which are from reeds and other probably not food plants, which look like they might have been making a sort of mat or mattress out of soft plants to sleep on. These caves would only have been temporary homes, and groups would have moved around between several of these base camps whenever they had enough to eat of the local plants or hunted enough of the local animals. This does not seem to have stopped people from making them comfortable, though, with prepared hearths for the fire and comfy sleeping areas, and maybe even something like a door made of brushes piled up against the entrance. We can see these caves being visited pretty regularly, either by the same group of people or by several groups of people, often for thousands of years. So while these may not have been places where people stayed all year, or even for a particularly long time on any given visit, they seem to have come back to the same caves frequently enough, or they stayed for long enough, or failing that, they cared enough to make these comfy places to stay while they were there. Now that we know where people were staying, and that they seem to have looked after their creature comforts at home, what else is new? For instance, what did they eat? Well. They gathered wild plants and hunted wild animals, much like we saw in the lower Paleolithic. There are some changes, though, particularly in how they went about hunting. I previously talked about running down an animal as big as a bison and poking it with a stick. In the middle Paleolithic, we have evidence that people were, shall we say, getting a bit better at hunting. Don't get me wrong, killing something that big with a pointy bit of wood was not exactly easy or simple and lower Paleolithic people would have had to have been pretty good at hunting already in order to be trying that on a regular basis. Let's say rather that people in the middle Paleolithic made some improvements to the way that they hunted. In the middle Paleolithic, we have a nice new bit of technology which improved the weapons. Spears from the lower Paleolithic were pretty much a good long walking stick with the end sharpened to a point. 
We know this because we found them. We haven't found any from the Near East. I definitely would have mentioned that last week if we had. We did find some lower Paleolithic spears once in Germany at a site called Schöningen, preserved in the lignite mine, or a type of coal mine. And these were a little taller than a person, with tips made of sharpened wood. They would have worked as spears for throwing, but it takes a lot of force to poke through an animal, so you probably would have needed to be pretty close to make it count. We're not talking about javelin throwing at the Olympics, but you could still get a pretty good short toss out of one of these. We assume that this sort of spear would have also been what was used in the Near East during the Lower Paleolithic, but they're not the sort of spears that we should imagine for the Middle Paleolithic. In the Middle Paleolithic, we don't have these sort of wooden javelins. I mean, we may have, but these were not the only option. Now we get an improvement when people worked out how to stick pointed stone tools onto the end of the spears so that you're sticking the animal with something that's not only pointy, but also really sharp. These probably also were not much for long distance throwing, but they meant that you would have had better luck taking down an animal if you jumped out from behind some bushes and lobbed your new pointy spear at it. And we know that these new spear points were not just a fancy sort of triangular knives, although you could use them as a knife if you wanted to, because we found a fair few of them where the tips were broken from an impact. And we've also found the tips of these stuck in the bones of animals hunted by middle Paleolithic people. These spear points were not only an improvement in weaponry, but they were a technical achievement in and of themselves. You can't just wedge a sharp rock into a stick and hope for the best. These points have to be stuck in place, and these would have been tied, but probably also glued in place on the spear. We know that they probably would have been glued in place because we found some stone points with bitumen residue still sticking to the bottom part of the point where you would attach the spear. Bitumen is a naturally occurring sort of sticky tar that forms where you have oil, or rather petroleum, seeping out of the ground in parts of the Near East. It was used for quite a while as a natural glue in later time periods. And based on a series of points that were found around the El Com Oasis in Syria, it was also used as a glue in the Middle Paleolithic. Hunters in the Middle Paleolithic used these nice tipped spears, mostly for going for large and prime animals, not just the young, the old, or the sick. So they were presumably pretty effective. Of course, People also caught smaller animals, like tortoises and hares, and they collected and ate plants from around the landscape, so it wasn't just a life of large animal stakes. But having spear points is a pretty neat bit of tech upgrade, and it would have helped them getting those stakes when they wanted to. You may have noticed that I haven't yet mentioned who we're talking about here in the Middle Paleolithic. The stone tool industry used here in this time period does use a lot of the Lavalois technique but Lavalois isn't the official name that we use for it. The stone tool tradition that we see in the Near East, here in the Middle Paleolithic, is called the Mousterian. Now, in Europe, we also have the Mousterian, and that one's pretty straightforward. In Europe, in the Middle Paleolithic, we have stone tools of the Mousterian, and the people using those tools are Neanderthals. So, as we have the Mousterian in the Near East in the Middle Paleolithic, then the Near East is also home to Neanderthals. Well, yes and no. We are talking about Neanderthals sleeping in caves on mattresses of reeds or scattered ashes, springing out from behind trees to hunt large animals with pointed spears and taking them home to cook over the fire. The complication here in the Near East is that Neanderthals are not the only people around. Here in the Near East, in the Middle Paleolithic, 
also hunting large animals with spears using stone points and also making family base camps in caves and cooking their food over the fire are humans. To be more specific, they're what we call anatomically modern humans. You may remember them from the first episode, the humans who looked like us, moved like us, with heads and faces like us, but who, as far as we can tell, had no art, no personal display, no religious beliefs, or any of the other things that make us the sort of humans that we are today. Of course, Neanderthals and humans are not the same, so we should easily be able to tell which of our cave sites were being used by humans and which were being used by Neanderthals and be able to compare the differences in how we and our cousins lived, right? Well, no, we can't. We really can't tell the difference between the sites used by humans and those used by Neanderthals. Even when we have the bones of either humans or Neanderthals in a cave, both groups use the same type of stone tools made in pretty much the same way, and it's their actual bones that tell us who was using the cave and not the stuff they left behind. Both were good hunters, and both had base camps in caves where they gathered around the fire and cooked dinner, made their tools, and visited with family and friends. The best that we can tell from the bones that we've found is that humans were really only present in the southwestern parts of the Near East, pretty much just in the Levant, the same area along the coast where we had the Ashulo-Yubrudin at the end of the Lower Paleolithic. This does not mean that the Ashulo-Yubrudin was made by humans. We have no evidence of that, and the earliest evidence that we have for humans in this area is about 70,000 years after the end of the Ashulo-Yubrudin. We have found a few bones from the earliest part of the Middle Paleolithic, but unfortunately these have only been a few little pieces, and nothing yet where we can tell for certain if we have a human or a Neanderthal. Where we do get humans, they seem to turn up in the Levant at the earlier part of the Middle Paleolithic and later these caves only provide bones from Neanderthals. So it looks like humans wandered out of Africa sometime around 130,000 years ago or before, and they lived in the Levant, maybe alongside Neanderthals or maybe alone, but by about 75 or 80,000 years ago, we stopped finding the bones of humans and we only have the bones of Neanderthals. Across the rest of the Near East, all the way from Turkey to Iran and actually a bit further east than that, we have Neanderthals probably living over this entire area the whole way through the Middle Paleolithic. Where we have both humans and Neanderthals living in the same area, really the only potential difference that we found, and believe me, we've looked, is that humans seem to be moving from cave to cave according to season, visiting some caves only or mostly in the spring, some in the summer, and so on. And Neanderthals seem to have visited the same caves at different times of the year. That's pretty much it. This is, of course, a bit annoying, as we like to think of ourselves as bigger, faster, stronger, and above all, smarter than any of the other people species that existed before we did. So it's a bit of a kick in the um, ego to know that for over 50,000 years, we lived in the same region as the Neanderthals. We had the same tools as they did, not better ones. We hunted the same animals with the same degree of skill, and to add insult to injury, we seem to have gotten kicked out of the Levant by the Neanderthals, who then had the area to themselves for another 25 or 30,000 years before we humans grew up enough to muscle our way back in. What could we have been like in the Middle Paleolithic that we got pushed around by Neanderthals? What could the Neanderthals have been like that they muscled us out and kept us out for so long? I mean, 
We all know what we think of when we hear the word Neanderthal. Take a moment. What do you think of when you picture Neanderthal? Is he a stooped and hairy guy dragging a club behind him? Is he called Ugg? I mean, we all know that the Neanderthals were stupid and primitive and nowhere near as good as us humans, right? Well, next week we'll take a look at Neanderthals, where they came from, what they were like, and why we think of them as dim knuckle-draggers. Then in two weeks, we'll have a look at what we humans were like at the same time, based on what we know about ourselves from the one part of the Near East where we were able to hang on throughout the Middle Paleolithic, and see what we were like as anatomically modern humans before we became, well, modern humans. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at prehistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find links to the Lavalois method or any of the other things which we talked about today, you can find these on the website at prehistorypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please give me a rating and a review on your podcast platform of choice to help other people find the podcast as well. And of course, come listen next week when we get nosy and pry into the lives of the Neanderthals. <laughs>